Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis, and together we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step -step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. When I'm not teaching people about positive reinforcement training, my focus is very much on environmental issues. And I feel so unbelievably privileged that every few weeks I get to share with you a conversation with Manda Scott. I could introduce Manda to you by saying she is a veterinarian, an author of historical fiction, a sustainable economist, a climate change activist, a teacher of shamanic dreaming. Instead, I'm simply going to say that Manda is a good friend who reminds me every time I visit with her of the path I want to be on. Especially in these uncertain times, it is so easy to get busy, to get worried, to get pulled in different directions by the demands of the here and now. And Manda reminds us to take a breath, to remember to listen, to feel, to imagine, and simply to ask questions. And in this conversation, she offers us some important questions, which I want to share with you. The more of us who ask these questions, the more we may find some answers. Manda begins with a question we're all asking a lot these days. How are you? Okay, we are recording as of now. How are you? Excellent. I'm good. Uh, you know, more or less as one can be in this weird, <laughs> weird yeah. world. I don't know what that means anymore. How are you? I don't know. Well, yeah. How are you? Well, I suppose how is lockdown is the first thing is is because your state seems to be the one that is handling it most sanely, at, at least oh, as far as we can yes. tell from over yes. here. Yes, it is. It is. I've never particularly identified as a New Yorker. I've lived here the bulk of my life, but you know, it's, it's where I live. It's where we ended up. But I've never been so proud to be from New York as I am mm. now. There we go. I, right. Yeah. We actually have yeah. someone who is in charge who is governing well yeah, and communicating yeah. well. Yes, there seem to be a few striking people around the world. So there's Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. There's Cuomo yes. for you. There's Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland. Um, oh. There may be others that we don't know about, but those are the ones that I'm kind of picking up on my social Merkel. media feeds that they're. Yeah, of course, Merkel. Yes, yes, yes. So three yeah. out of the four are women so far, yes. Uh, yes. which I think is probably and, something and to do. Cuomo has three daughters, so maybe that's had an oh, impact yeah. on him. Yeah. I don't know. But, you know, he's every morning he does a press briefing, which I listen to in the evening, and he speaks with empathy. He starts everything out with data. You know, this right. is the number of hospitalizations. These are the facts as we know them. This is the data we're collecting. When things change, we'll let you know. We're yeah. not trying to hide anything. We want to be as transparent as possible. All of this data is up on the on a, a website. Go look at it. What he's really done so well, I think, is 
set a tone because New York City was hard hit and there were the number of deaths there was considerable. Mm-hmm. Being in lockdown in an apartment with is living hell. Clearly. Yes, is horrible. And particularly if you're in an apartment with people you don't get along with or are afraid of. The data is now showing that the hardest hit communities were the minorities, no surprise there really, and that the public housing units are the one areas that where there, there are still outbreaks. So you could see with a different tone being set, you could see that this could turn really violent really fast. Yeah. It's staying civil. Um, some, of right. the, some of the news reports from other parts of the country are just horrifying. Yeah, yeah. The fact that, that they have protesters going into the state capitol in Michigan with guns. Armed protesters, yeah, yeah. But, it, you know, it's, it's horrifying, but it's not surprising because that's the way the rhetoric has led, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's, it is the obvious endpoint, but, you know, it doesn't change the virus. You know, it's, it's a virus. Guns aren't going to change the outcome. No. They're just going to change how people might behave in a way that does or doesn't mitigate it. Um, I gather somebody sent around, and I'm beginning to not trust social media, but it looked plausible, uh, a map of the places in the US that are currently going, we don't believe in the virus, we're just going to behave as normal. And the places where they did that in the influenza pandemic of, 20, of 1918. And they pretty much map and then you look at the map of the second peak and the number of deaths, and that maps too. Uh, you know, this is epidemiology. It's not. This is basic fundamental science. But I think you know, it, the thing about Cuomo and Merkel and Jacinda Ardern and Nicola Sturgeon is, what they are doing should not be exceptional. No. But it is. I know it. I it's know it. Totally terrifying. I have to say that Cuomo is showing really good presentation skills. He doesn't read from a script. He just talks. Right. And you think he's been doing this now for 70 plus days. Yeah. And every day there is some new element that he puts in or some some piece that he emphasizes. And his presentation skills are indeed exceptional. I watch him in part just as somebody who gives presentations, I watch in part for that. There are right. not that many people who are that skilled at just talking, you know, without right. a script. Yeah, um, yeah, they, they can would, get their head would, around the stuff. Right, right, where they yeah. know the material and they know what they're going to say and that they have, and he, and he always has a PowerPoint associated with it. So whoever, his, he's got a really good staff that yeah. um, has this up and ready for him day after day after day, and that he has reviewed it and clearly knows what's coming. And he's, so from a presentation point of view, never mind from a governing point of view, from a presentation point of view, he's very skilled. Right. And that's not that common. One of the things that I find really interesting is suddenly we all know about the uh, 1918 influenza. Yeah, well, that we didn't I, even notice existed before. I had never heard about the influenza until I watched Upstairs, Downstairs. 
you watch top series episodes. Oh, you are more British than I am, Alex. Because one of the characters in uh, Upstairs, Downstairs died of um, the during the influenza. And that was the first time, and I read history. That was the first time I'd ever heard about about it. And then it just disappeared off the face of my awareness. So the only place where I had ever heard of this horrific occurrence was from upstairs, downstairs. Wow. Why have, I mean, <laughs> is that not bizarre? Why, where, how did this so disappear from our collective consciousness? I think because there's been such a narrative of modern medicine that we are now superhuman and fundamentally, beside you know the ones that garner lots of money, which is essentially cancer and and increasingly Alzheimer's, and a few other kind of like what are the equivalent of the charismatic megafauna that we talk about in climate activism, we we have this narrative that reductionist Western medicine has fixed things. And I think that's one of the reasons why everyone is so thrown by this pandemic is is why why can we not just take a pill and get rid yeah. of it? Because that's what we've been told that does everything. And one of the really dangerous narratives that I'm watching in the UK, less in the US because <laughs> the guy at the top of you is still talking about drinking bleach, but in the UK they're all still focused on this idea of a vaccine. And and it's you know, this is fundamental science, guys. This is a coronavirus. That's the common cold. Why is there not a vaccine for the common cold? Because we don't develop long-term immunity to coronaviruses. So so there are okay. other impacts that coronaviruses do, but why are we all sitting around waiting for a vaccine? You know, this is the, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing time after time and expecting a different result. Yeah, they're, no, they're not talking about that. They're just talking about, you know, that there's going to be this, the vaccine and it's going to be developed faster than a vaccine has ever been developed. Which is possible. Yeah. Because, you know, there is a lot of cooperation in the scientific community. There are people working together now who have been lifelong adversaries because, you know, this is my niche and you're not echoing standing right, right. in it. But so it's possible that we might develop a vaccine faster than has ever been developed before. It doesn't mean it'll develop immunity in the people to whom you give it. So so what you're saying is that we need to get used to a very different way of life yeah. if we want to avoid the Yes. The virus. Yes. And there will be huge swaths of the population that are going to say, oh, well, let me go have a virus party the way they used to have yes. chickenpox parties. They did that in the UK. They, the right wing commentators, our equivalents of Rush Limbaugh, were exactly saying chickenpox parties and people were doing it. In the in the week before lockdown, when they're all going, oh, don't be ridiculous, we don't need to do lockdown. They were exactly talking about chickenpox parties. Wow. Um, and there are now people dead as a result. You know, yes. it's I, I have a friend whose neighbours whose neighbours did this. They went, you know, basically we we don't believe in lockdown. We are going to carry on just as normal because we're in our seventies. And we the actual words they said were, "We've paid our dues." As in, you know, we've raised children, we've paid taxes. I, I'm not entirely sure what other dues, and therefore we are going to carry on life as normal. And and one of them is now dead. It's, uh, whoa, that's, I'm not well, sure viruses are are the are necessarily going to take that on board. But there was a very interesting paper on the long tail effects of this. So there's the acute respiratory 
effect. Then there's the acute renal effect. I have a friend who's working in one of the big London hospitals. They cleaned out their renal ward and made it a COVID positive ward for the people who are getting r- kidneys shut down. As a, as a, you know, the ones who survived being on a ventilator and then their kidneys shut down. Yep. And and then there seem to be effects of this. It's not just a respiratory virus, and and we don't know what the long term effects are. You know, there's the Kawasaki syndrome in children, which yes. seems to be you know, it's the ones who look like they've recovered, or even the ones who are asymptomatic. It's going to be quite a while before we have proper data on this. And in the meantime, the safest thing to say is, you know what, we don't know, um, and and because we don't know. Trying to get it might not be a very clever thing to do. So if that's the case, then we are beginning to look at, because I think it feels like we're still going through the seven phases of denial, of of grief, where, you know, there's denial and then there's anger and then there's bargaining. Yes. Um, And I think we're still in the, a lot of people in the denial and bargaining phase of, of basically I want my life back exactly as it was before. And and I'm just holding my breath and doing what it takes. And at some point, somebody will snap their fingers and the world will return to what they think of as normal. Yes. And and then the rest was going, are, are you sure you want that? Because, you know, the data coming out of Britain is that 25% of people felt that their job was completely pointless and another 33% felt that it was mostly pointless. Mm. So that's over half of the people felt that their jobs were to some degree pointless. And David Graver, who's an amazing, amazing economist, wrote a very good but very big book called Bullshit, no, Bullshit Economics, Bullshit Jobs, sorry, which is also Bullshit Economics, pointing out that most of us were doing jobs that really were only there to keep us hooked in to the system. And and I know I'm beginning to sound like a broken record, but this is the chance to change the system. The Boeing yes. 747 has landed. We could dismantle it and create something. What is the better world, the more flourishing world, the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible? And yes. I've, I have met so many people and it may be that I just I'm talking within my own bubble, but everybody says this is better. You know, we're not living on the 10th floor of a high rise with an abusive husband and six children. It, it must be living hell. But our job now is to make it not living hell, to make it flourishing for those people, not to go back to a point where Amazon workers can be abused for the minimum wage again, or, or, or delivery people can be cycling around big cities being paid £9 an hour and having £3 of that deducted for some spurious cause by their boss. You know, this is is this really the normal that we want to return to? And yes, it's the normal that the newspaper magnates and people like Murdoch and the Barclay brothers and the people who run your and my countries want because they did very, very well in a system that was designed to shovel value from the bottom to the top. But nobody else did. And we were hitting climate tipping points. And, you know, if this is not the time to start flattening the climate curve as well as the virus curve, then I really don't know what is. And you, you and I talked about this last time. We're still hitting those climate points. We don't we want to look at them or talk about them. It's like you yeah. start talking about climate change and people are and like, people go, are, away, go crazy. away, go away. You know, yep. yes. Yep. Uh, but, but in I don't know what's happening in the US with, their, with your Extinction Rebellion, but our Extinction Rebellion in London put a thousand pairs of children's shoes in Trafalgar Square overnight the other night. 
to be present for the children who are are not being taught the things that they need to be taught, even under normal circumstances, and whose lives, whose futures will not happen if we don't do something about climate change. And then Extinction Rebellion in Cardiff in Wales painted official, very official looking cycle lanes right through the city. Wow. And and people are now cycling on them and, and cars are not driving on them and they've done them in pink and image. There is obvious that they're not the ones that the council puts there, but they're working. So we just have to become more creative because, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about that in terms of my own life. I can't fly to clinics right now. The, that's that's not available to me because of the virus. So I have to think of new and creative and other and different ways of changing what I was doing, you know, to yeah. do it because in a different way. Because your job was useful. Yeah, yes. you were giving people real value yes. that really made an impact on their lives. But then can you do it without flying? Right. Is there another way of doing it? And, and there's a certain hands-on when it comes to horses that yeah. is important, but there are always other ways of doing everything. That's what you learn in training. There's always another way to shape everything. So we have to become creative. We have to find the creative other ways of doing things. So one of the things that is clear, people have to have some form of income, some form of being able to yeah. have an exchange of goods okay. and services and, yeah. and to feel of value. So I was having a conversation with Susan Freeman that, that um, we just put up as a podcast. And she has a great lot. We, we started out talking about negative reinforcement and we started, we were talking about the virus and vaccines and the, this paradox that as the effectiveness, if you get, say you were to get an effective vaccine, we have effective vaccines for for measles. Hmm. Smallpox. Smallpox. We eradicated smallpox. We eradicated smallpox. We got close with polio. But we have measles outbreaks in this country because, because people forget how horrible measles is, that measles kills children. But we forget that because it's become so rare. It's like this, this, when I say, I had not heard about the 1918 um, flu. It's, it's, we jumped from the horrors of the trenches in World War I to the Roaring Twenties and skipped. It's like we blanked out, blotted out the horrors of the influenza deaths. But measles and these other we have vaccines and so when the disease is really prevalent as it is right now in new york city and these other places that are having big outbreaks people are very afraid of the of the virus and so if a vaccine were to be developed there would be lines out the door to be vaccinated because people Mm. are afraid Mm. yeah but then as the effectiveness, let's say it's an effective vaccine, is the effectiveness of the vaccine causes a decrease in the, in the number of cases of the virus, people forget, they lose their fear of it. And then they start, oh, you know, the vaccine might have side effects, I don't want to take a vaccine. 
And so the, the effectiveness of the vaccine is its own undoing, as it were, because then people no longer vaccinate. And so then there's an uptick in the number of cases of the virus. So you, you, you have these, these opposing curves and you don't, so to, to actually achieve something like smallpox, when we eliminated smallpox, is, is pretty astounding. So we started out thinking about talking about negative reinforcement and the real paradox that, that yes, it's very effective in changing our behavior. Many of us are wearing masks. Many of us are washing hands. And we're doing all of this to keep something that we can't even see from happening. You know, I'm mm. washing my hands so I don't get sick. Well, yeah. if I go out, today I went to the grocery store. And so I went to the grocery store and I also stopped at a nursery to get some tomato plants so and you're growing stops. tomatoes that's great I'm gro- i know i know wonderful and and of course after each one of these stops i'm madly using my hand sanitizer and and washing that you know cleaning my hands and mm. and cleaning the steering wheel and anything else that i touch to when i'm in these stores i i touch as little as possible yeah. and all of this behavior is to keep myself from becoming sick now hopefully knock on wood I'm not going to be sick. And and each time I go out, that sort of gives me more confidence to go out a little bit more because, you know, I was fine last time mm. I went out. And I was yes. fine the time before. And so right. I'll go out a little bit more. psychology of safety. Yeah. yeah. Right. I'll go out a little bit more because it was fine. And maybe I'll get a little bit loud. Oh, you know, I've run out of hand sanitizer. It's okay. And then that behavior allows for the uptick of the virus. And mm. this living in fear is no good. So yeah. so we were I was talking to Susan about how do we shift things. And she had this yes. wonderful line that I just loved, which is that positive reinforcement is a very pervasive actor in our lives. And that it's everywhere. When you start looking for it, it's everywhere. She, she, she was referring to it like Easter eggs, where you start looking hmm. and they're just hidden yes. everywhere, yes. which is a lovely image. And she shared the experience she had because she's in a, a high-risk group. So she's been being very careful about going out. And so she had somebody who was doing the shopping. So she was using the grocery store service of, of you give them a list and somebody goes in and gets your groceries and then delivers them to your door. and. In the past, she would never have used a service like that. It would not have yeah. occurred to her to use a service like that. Well, there was but, no need. Well, there would there is a need because it saves her a lot of time. She's got one of those nonstop schedules. So it might have been really convenient. And in fact, that's what she has discovered, that it was the fear of the virus that caused her to use the shopper. But now she's discovered that it's a wonderful service. And the shopper, when there there was something on her list that wasn't in the store, and so she said, this person took a picture on her phone of what was available on the shelf and sent it to Susan, and they had this lovely exchange back and forth, which Susan was enjoying. And then the, the groceries were delivered within a couple of hours of when all of this, and it was just this wonderfully mm-hmm. convenient service. And so what started out as something that was being propelled through negative reinforcement will now be maintained 
through positive reinforcement. Right. Because the social interaction is a positive reinforcement. Yes. And for for the person who's doing the shopping, I was thinking, well, who knows? I'm I'm sure the grocery stores have had to hire on extra people Mm. to provide this service. So maybe this person was an out of work waiter that she used to work in a restaurant. But restaurants uh, are all shut. So now she's delivering. So now she's being a personal shopper. And for her, it may be even more satisfying because, yes, she gets a paycheck. That's important. But she also gets this being of service to an individual, the back and forth exchange. So clearly, this is a long and rambling way of getting around to, you know, I'm right now I'm I'm sitting in the garden room looking out over the back garden with and the trees are just beginning to leaf out and it's that beautiful green of a fresh mm. early spring that there's that that very special quality when the leaves are yeah. just greening out just coming out the newly yeah. unfurled leaves yes, yes it's just beautiful out and you think the world is such a beautiful place such a beautiful place and we have this opportunity now to be creative and to create yeah. these these new other different ways of being of value, being of service, getting a paycheck. Yes. And staying safe. Yes. Yes. And we can we can start asking the questions of what is our economy for? Because if what it's for is making Jeff Bezos a trillionaire faster, I'm not sure there are many people other than Jeff Bezos thinks that's a good idea. But if our economy is the oil in the gears that mesh us together in communities of caring, then it's valuable. And then that's what, you know, in a sense, essence, that's what we evolved as. We evolved as tribal people, everybody in the tribe had a role. There was no such thing as unemployment. And everybody was part of an interrelated set of highly complex, very detailed relationships. And I'm sure that if you were the kind of person who wanted to stand outside of that, it could have been really stultifying. But it is almost all of our evolutionary history until the last couple of thousand years. And and for some of us, obviously, the people of the indigenous tribes of the world that still exist, it's still happening. And I think somewhere if we could, because kind of neoliberal capitalism has happened by default up to a point, and then it, in the Reagan-Thatcher years, it was picked up as a deliberate political tool. But nobody really stopped to ask where it was going. And the real irony is that Milton Friedman, who was one of the guys who really picked this up and ran with it, thought that the market run by Homo economicus, who is this perfectly rational human being who oh, only yes. does rational things, yep. um, would would stop excesses of power accumulating anywhere. They had this this idea that that was that market balancing always happened. And what we're seeing is that that doesn't happen. So we know that it's wrong. It's wrong in so many ways. Um, but you know, this whole idea that the government economy is like a household economy. And how did you manage to spin that to people? And the answer is because they they are familiar with the household economy. Right. And so you go, okay, ours is the same and we just scale it up. Everybody understands that and nobody goes, but 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 you get to make money. And if I make money, you lock me up. Yeah, you get to go to war. And if I do that I do start... that. It's called murder. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah, and and you take taxes off us. So when we spend, everybody, you know, everything is basically. You know, it's not the health service. Everyone goes. The health service in Britain is is hugely expensive. No, the health service in Britain is a way of caring for people, and money flows round it in that caring, and then flows back to the government in tax. And until you decide that that giving half of it to private companies, privately owned companies, would be a fun thing to do. It's all staying in the same system. It all flows back to the government as tax. So, you know, it's what we could do now is really look at how value arises and how it is shared and why we are doing what we are doing. And we've got this pause and people seem, it seems to me over the, we've been in lockdown now, I think this is week nine. And in the beginning, there was a huge flurry of invitations on email to join Zooms that were happening I could have joined 20 in any given day that were people going, okay, now what should we do? And that settled down a bit. And I was invited last week to join something called Humanity Rising, run by the Ubiquity University. And they have done what a friend and I on a, on a previous Accidental Gods podcast said we needed to do and then realized we just didn't have the time or the bandwidth. They are endeavoring to bring all of these idea hubs under one umbrella and get them all interacting. They've got, I think last count, 125 different organizations buying in. They've got a reach of 10 million. Their aim is 1 billion at least. And they're going to run TED Talk-like things where somebody gives their talk, but then that somebody has picked a panel. Then the panel can converse. And then there's audience question and answer all online. And then you have a few weeks of those. And then the people go, okay, person, that person on that panel and that person on that panel and that person on the other panel, they would make a really interesting new panel. Let's bring them together. And they're going to run for as long as the pandemic runs, which if you've listened to me at all, it means as far as I'm concerned, it's going to run forever. And they've got good software and good people running it. And because another Milton Friedman's really interesting concepts was when a crisis happens, the ideas that are picked up are the ones that are lying around. Yes. And if the ideas that are lying around are, hey, why don't we give enormous quantities of money to our friends in the fossil fuel industry or the airlines or you know, people who've just paid out enormous quantities to their shareholders? Yeah, why don't we give them more money so they can do that again? Then that's what will happen. If there are other ideas that are not only lying around but gaining social credence, then they will be the ones that are picked up. So what we, I think, the kind of people who I am assuming are listening to this, on the on the belief that we're probably now in the bit of this podcast that's actually going to be broadcast. Um, <laughs> who knows? What, what listening, what we can do then is begin to listen to the ideas that make our hearts sing and then share them with the person who delivers the groceries, if we've got groceries being delivered, with our neighbour, with the person who doesn't like Cuomo. But if you had a conversation that went, well, what kind of job did you have? Did it feel like, you know, when you died, you were going to be really, really happy that you'd spent your life doing that? Would it be interesting? What would you do if you could do anything? And what would it take to enable you to do that? And maybe we could do that now, because all of us running in little hamster wheels to be wage slaves for a machine that just basically exists in order to create more wage slaves might not be the best use of our time and effort. And if the more we can create those conversations, the more we can build alternatives that can then run, I think, I hope.
projects. And what we need is people who can think. And then we need, you know, that whole power to those with wisdom and wisdom to those with power. We need to get the right people talking to them to open up the idea spectrum because yes. it's terrifyingly narrow amongst those with power at the moment. And it's not terrifyingly narrow out in the the collective unconscious. There are so many fantastic ideas being played with and expanded on and so shared. What would be some examples just off the top of your head? What are people what are some of the ideas that are out there to be picked up in the the, the complete shift in what value is and how we share it. Gail Bradbrook, I, I interviewed her, so she's one of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion and her next rebellion is a money rebellion because she she has pointed out that most of the big companies now, only small people take, pay tax, that's that's basically a given. Our, our government spends a lot of time worrying about, say, immigrants who might be claiming on the NHS uh, and, and that's a tiny, tiny, it's less than a thousandth of one percent of the overall spend of the government. Whereas Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, all of the Monsanto, all of the big companies, if they were to actually pay the taxes that they owe, we could put everybody on furlough for the rest of their lives. Yeah, we could fund the NHS to whatever it needed. And so we need now to go, and, and our country, the UK, is the biggest tax haven creator in the world. This is an imperial, you know, it's a, a legacy of our imperial past. And the really, really startling thing that I hadn't realized was, let's say, company X, so that we don't get sued, company X refuses or just doesn't pay its taxes because it's managed to put its headquarters in the Cayman Islands. So they've got trillions of dollars sitting there basically gaining money because once you've got money, it makes more money. That's the nature of interest. So we stop compound interest. That's one of the things we would do. But um, at the moment, money makes money and they use it to buy government bonds on which interest is paid. So basically, we, the taxpayer, end up paying them interest on the tax they haven't paid. That has to stop. Yes. So we have that. to get to the point where we go, you know, that's just not legal anymore. There are no tax havens. There will be no tax havens. And then we need to look at what money is and how it arises. At the moment, without wanting to give all of our listeners an economics lecture, but fundamentally, most people think governments make money. And in the UK, the government makes the pound notes and the coins, and that's less than 1% of the circulating money. The rest of the money is made by the banks, who invent it out of nothing and then sell it to us at a profit. That profit is not very much at the moment because the interest rates are now lower than they have ever been in the history of interest rates. But that also needs to stop. We need to find new ways of generating money than banks going, you see that house? You really want that house? Okay, so I'm going to sell you some money with which to buy that house. And if you fail to pay me the interest on that, I'll just have the house. Thank you. Or the land or whatever it else it is. Right. Right. So what, what they do is look at a patch of value and they monetize it and they create the money and then they hook us all into a system where the only way to live is to keep paying the interest on the value that they have just accumulated. That has to stop. So I don't want this to turn into an economics lecture, but it, it's not hard to work out. If, if anybody's interested, Charles Eisenstein's Sacred Economics is a really good starting place, or Kate Rayworth's Donut Economics, where she's 
looked at all the old models and realized that economists were trying to be physicists. They were trying to present the economy as if the laws of the market were like gravity. You know, they were physical laws and they're not. They're psychological, social laws. We've just discovered our, our government spent the last 10 years going, there is no money tree. And they have just discovered the money forest <laughs> because because they have to. And and oh, look, suddenly we can pay everybody if we want to. And yet, my problem with universal basic income was always that if you don't have rent controls and you give everybody, let's suppose we create a universal basic income, we give everybody $1,000 a month and the rents go up by $900 a month, we have just discovered the most efficient way of channeling public money into private hands ever invented. And and the economists looking at, at our country, 45% of the money that the government has paid to people has gone into rent. So they are just shoveling public money into private hands at very large volumes. And that that needs not to happen. So we need to find ways to, to prevent that from happening. Because that money doesn't recirculate. If money keeps flowing around, then it's just lubricant. And that one, what it does is enables people's lives to flourish. That's what it should be for. If an economy is predicated on people and the planet thriving, then it will be a useful economy. At the moment, it's predicated on the economy has to grow. And whatever it takes for the economy to grow, we will do. And if that means rendering ourselves extinct by hitting climate tipping points, then that doesn't matter. There's a cartoon that I'm sure you've seen that was current, God knows, 10 years ago of three people sitting in a cave around a fire in very tattered clothing. And and the guy is going, well, yeah, there's very few of us left, but for one beautiful moment in time, we created maximum shareholder value. Yeah. And and we we have to stop. <laughs> you know, fundamentally, we have to stop. So what, what I'm trying to do at the moment, because, okay, oh God, I'm being incoherent. I am trying to do two things. One is I'm about to start season three of the Accidental Gods podcast, and that will be the season that asks every guest so there are no limits. If you were to design the future as you want it, what would it look like? And crucially, how would it feel? Because I've all of my meditations at the moment, I do whatever I do, you know, whatever one does to begin the meditation, but the last 10, 15, 20, sometimes longer, is how do I feel physically in my heart space if everything is right? If we get everything right. And what I've discovered because you know, this is like riding. You you take the very thin one cell layer off the onion and guess what? The onion's growing from the inside. You're never going to get to the inside. But you see a new bit of onion and a new bit and a new bit and a new bit. And every day is different. The answer to that question is shifting a little. But in the early days, what I found was I didn't know how scared I was until I le- gave myself permission not to be. That my images of the future were hemmed around with yes buts of yeah but but we can't yes but we're hitting tipping points yes but it's going to be really really bad quite soon yes but the money will run out or all of those things were absolutely hardwired and I had no idea my my narratives were not that but my emotional felt sense was that and it's taken you know nine weeks of lockdown of every day unpicking that for it to begin to relax to the point where I can sit and create a space in which it feels as if everything is not only okay now, it's going to be okay. 
and it's going to be better than okay. It's going to be amazingly, flourishingly wonderful. And we can't get to somewhere if we can't imagine how it feels. Yes. And if what we're imagining is, you know, a variant on Mad Max, where we're all being kebabbed by our bigger and stronger neighbors over piles of burning tires, then that's where we'll end up. So that sense of how does it feel? All of my students now, dreaming students, accidental God students, that's my, this is the single most important thing we can be doing, is working out how does it feel for me? Because it may feel different for you. I'm finding keywords. Keyword at the moment is two keywords. One is courage and one is confidence. And, And confidence is taking on new meanings. It's got that sense of I am the right person in the right place at the right time. I can breathe freely. And, and that's a revelation. <laughs> and then I can have the courage to be that. Even when the rest of me, all the other chariot horses in the field are going, you know, we might not quite be there. I look on Twitter and, you know, Boris Johnson has done something else unspeakably horrendous. <laughs> so it's still important to feel that. And then on the back of that, I have finally managed to get a group together. My next Zoom call after we are done tonight is with a really lovely television director who is otherwise working on The Matrix, and another writer for whom I have absolute respect. And we are working on a television outline of how could we get from here to there? What would it look like? Wow. So that we have a roadmap, because yeah. we haven't. Every single bit of our modern era's storytelling is predicated on the economy needs to grow and the winner is the person who manages to get higher up the ladder than the others, one way or another. The winner gets more stuff or the right person or, you know, all of their dreams are predicated on an extractivist economy. That's right. At some level. And And, and we have to stop. And you're the lucky one who just happened to be born in the right Hmm. slice of of society that you are cushioned. Oh, you dragged yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, you weren't. You were born into abject poverty, but now you've made it as the entrepreneur who's running, you know, the next Amazon. And and isn't that an amazing model? And look, everybody can do this. And that's why we need not to be taxing rich people, because you could be that person, despite the fact that everything is loaded against you and your chances are infinitesimally small. But there's not actually zero. So let's just carry on with the system we have. Yeah. And that because... When you look at all of the stories that are being told, they basically all do end kind of in disaster. You know, climate change is coming at us and uh, the world is going to unravel and it's going to be hideous. Or, you know, the virus is going to uh, haunt us for years to come. And, and, you know, there's just one horrible scenario after another. And... You have only to listen to the news to realize that huge portions <laughs> Horrible of things the, are happening. That, that yes, that for many people, that is the current reality, yeah. that they are living in an absolute living hell, that that is their current reality. Yeah. And for them, it is not a beautiful planet by any stretch of the imagination. And so, you know, what does it feel like? And is how do we find that path forward and scale it because mm. there will yeah. always be there will always be individuals who find a little corner and and thrive but that's yes. not sufficient yeah and while we have a zero sum game 
where some people thrive and some people don't. Gail Bradbrook had a, a really lovely quote, which I will find shortly while I'm talking to you. Because the point has got to be, I think, that it's not just the people who find the little niche who manage to thrive, but that we live in a society where we understand that we all, we need to bring everybody with us. It's not enough for the, the top 1% to be having a wonderful time if the rest are in abject poverty and despair and their lives are living hell. We right. can't keep doing this. And it matters that the rest of the web of consciousness around the planet is also thriving because if all of the humans thrive but we trash the planet, then you know it's going to be a pretty short-term existence. So all of those need to be the things that we're working on. And the problem has always been for those of us in the kind of environmentalist movement, that the narrative is we we can't keep we can't worry about the acidification of the oceans if there are still people starving in Bangladesh. And and the answer to that has to be we need to address these equally. That the addressing of one is the addressing of the other. That the evening out of things so that the the eight people in the world do not own half of the value. Which, how did that even happen? Has to come hand in hand with the reason they own the value is is the reason the oceans are acidifying and the reason people are starving in Bangladesh or starving in Michigan. You know, it's it's not just people in what we would call the global south. Right. And what are they saying? 36 million, I think now, of people unemployed in the United States. Last week it was wow. 25 million that is not sustainable. Yeah, but it yeah, it isn't it isn't in the old system. So so the phrase that Gail used and somebody else created and I don't remember who was that the patriarchal wounds of scarcity, separation and powerlessness are what hold us in this. And there is nothing wrong with unemployment. You know, everyone who has is over the age of 65 who doesn't actively choose to do something else is unemployed. Unemployment matters if we have a system where you're doing, you know, flipping burgers for 10 hours a day is the only thing between you and actually starving to death. And that's the problem. If we can create a system where the value flows, you know, if the eight men, most of whom are situated in six are in North America and two are in South America, who own half the value, actually paid decent taxes, you could fund those millions tomorrow. The question then is, you know, if you give everybody a million dollars, then then suddenly the price of bread goes up. You know, that's the nature of inflation. It depends well, how you do the it. The question is, when you wake up in the morning and there's a whole day that is unfolding in front of you, do you mm. look forward to that with pleasure and anticipation and a welcoming of that day or with yes. that feeling of oh, another day to get yeah. through? And of course, you could be working fully employed and wake and, up with that feeling of yes. Oh, yes. another day to get through. I think a lot of people have discovered in lockdown how much they didn't enjoy their job. Yeah. And so how do we create a reality where you wake up in the morning with that sense of, I don't really know what's around the corner, but my goodness, I want to try and find out. Yes. You know, that kind of embracing of life, turning towards life and the uncertainty of life with joyful curiosity, how could we create a reality in which every single person on the planet wakes up going, 
Wow, it's another day. Yes, let's go and see what this day brings. How could we do that? And and that's still, you know, it's an open question. But if we set that as our goal, we are the most connected, most creative generation that this planet has ever seen in all of its existence. That's a very long time. If you listen to James Lovelock, who proposed the Gaia hypothesis, we are the most connected, most creative generation in the whole of the cosmos. I don't necessarily believe him, but you know, we we had, I'm not sure we said this before in a previous podcast, but I'll say it again anyway. Um, Jordan Hall, used to be Jordan Greenhall, very, very bright guy, one of the Daniel Schmachtenberger group, did some work on self-organizing connectivity interfaces, which is basically people connecting to each other. And he was doing the work at the end of last year, so before pandemic. And he reckoned that at that point, we were two orders of magnitude more connected than we had ever been. And since the pandemic, that has definitely gone up by at least another order of magnitude. We are now in exponential growth of our connectivity. And that has to bring about change. We don't know the nature of the change, but it has to make it happen. By connection, what does he mean by connection? He means internet connection. He means the ability for... So, so the theory is this is this goes back to theories of evolution, uh, which say that consciousness evolved from single cell, non-nucleated organisms through nucleated organisms. It took another billion years, and we began to get a more advanced life. That life came out of the oceans onto dry land, went through a few billion years of evolution. Finally, you know, a version of naked apes stood upright, and we stopped evolving in the terms of somebody had actual DNA characteristics that gave them a physical advantage about 10,000 years ago, if not slightly longer, possibly 100,000 years ago. But since then, the evolution has been social. So we developed language, which enabled 150 people to develop an idea. And if one of them got in a boat and sailed somewhere else, then a different group of 150 people could have that idea. That, that was a whole, then that level of connectivity was miraculous and hadn't happened before. And then we developed written language and we could put a letter on a boat and send it around the world. And people could gain that idea, you know, the, the idea of the printing press could cover the whole world and then people could read and, and ideas could be spread that way. And that was a whole new level of connectivity. And then we developed the internet. And in the lifetime of the internet, somebody did a calculation that when you and I were young, people used to read maybe 25% of a newspaper because you, you scan bits and you don't really right, read it. And right, that was right. the, that was the people who really read a lot. And that was most people's daily reading. And now most people's, even the average person's daily reading, who's reading their WhatsApp channels and Twitter is reading 10 to 50 times that per day. And, and there are people who are reading considerably more than that. And yes. then they're sharing that knowledge. And so ideas are moving around the world and spreading to larger numbers of people faster than they have ever done. So, you know, some of those ideas are not necessarily ideas that you and I would want to foster. And, and some of them are ideas that we definitely want to foster. But the, the actual connectivity and the capacity to share concepts is faster and wider now 
than it has ever been in the history of consciousness. So in terms of conscious evolution, this is a step towards yes. evolving what consciousness is. So all the more it becomes important. This is the skills that clicker training has been teaching us. You know, what does clicker training teach? teach? It says, focus on what you want, not on the unwanted behavior. Yeah. Um, the more you focus and break on it down the, into little bits. The more you focus on the unwanted behavior, the more you just stay stuck there. Focus on what is it that you want. Really visualize what is it that you want. When you have a when you have a behavior that you're wanting to change, you think, what is the function of that behavior? So when we talk about the economy. What's the function of the economy? Yes. What's yes. the function of this behavior? You know, yeah. you have a, a dog that's growling at you when you come into a room. What's the function yeah. of that behavior? To create distance, you know, to make, so that he can feel more comfortable. Well, can we expand the repertoire? Can we give him other behaviors that will achieve the same function? Yeah. So can we expand the repertoire? So we need to look at how do we expand the repertoire? What does that look like? What is the function? How do we expand the repertoire so that yeah. we can achieve the function, but in a different way? Yes, you know, and, and, and also we want to change the function. Yeah, I think we really want to change the function. the function of modern culture. Right, because what we would like to get to is the dog isn't growling to create distance. The dog is wagging his tail and wanting to approach. You know, yeah. we can absolutely change the function. But these are all part of what we learn through the training. These are ways of thinking, ways of looking at change that we can transfer. We can take those skills and transfer them to this much more complex and bigger picture that is what we now as people need to be doing in this period that's opened up for us, this incredible mm. gift that this virus is giving us. And, and then it is break things down into small component pieces so that, that are achievable. Because if you look at the whole big picture, it can seem overwhelming. Can't get yeah. there. Can't get there from here. And yet we have got here from where we, wherever we started, we are here. Yes, and are here, here is an extraordinary and miraculous place in many ways. Yes. And I'm thinking as you're speaking that if we predicate our our new concept of reality on positive reinforcement rather than negative reinforcement. I, a piece went around today in one of my social media that the UK government, right at the start of the lockdown, they housed all the homeless because they realised that otherwise basically those people were going to die in the streets and that this would be a very bad look. So they suddenly, after you know a decade of austerity going, well, you know, homelessness is an obvious necessary um, fallback, fallout of, of everybody just not working hard enough, suddenly they've housed the homeless. It's okay, we can find housing. Oh, really? And you didn't do that before because... And now they've, they're going to unhouse them because they want there to be homeless on the streets because that is the ultimate negative reinforcement. You know, people will probably go back to work if the alternative is they end up on the streets. But if there are not people lying on the streets and cardboard boxes to oh. be stepped over every day, you don't remember that that's the threat. And so oh. your tendency is to go, actually, I don't really want to go back to work because it's not safe. 
So they want to increase. So, you know, the entirety of our system is predicated on really quite vicious negative reinforcement. Yes. Yes. And supposing, how would it be if we had a system that was predicated on positive reinforcement instead? And, and, you know, I'm just playing with ideas because I think that's how people, people are loving lockdown. Not all of them. We have to say that every time. But most of the people I speak, I've spoken to have said very guiltily, it's great. I'm making friends with people. Hey, I didn't even know my neighbours before. And now, you know, we have street parties and I've gone shopping for people or they've come shopping for me. Or, you know, we've played these ridiculous games where, you know, we post a joke at the end of the street and then somebody else writes another one on the whiteboard and then there's a new joke every day and, and, and people are coming up with new things and we're discovering community again. And community is what people are for. You know, yes. We are communal beings and finding that intentional community of I found my tribe and I can thrive within it and I can feel authentic. I can really begin to have a sense that I look in the mirror and the person I see is the person I think I am. One of my long term dreaming students wrote to me this week, one of those emails that made me weep. And what she was saying was after 14 years of work, now she gets up in the morning, she looks in the mirror and the person who looks back feels like her. Wow. And she's finding her power and she's finding her authenticity. And how amazing would it be if all of us found that? Yeah. And it, you know, it shouldn't be impossible. We do not want to get to the end of our lives and not have that. Yeah. And we're connected enough now to share all of those ideas and, and model them and pass them around so that, you know, the virus spread from China into each of our lives. Why can't we do the same thing with Mm. writing a joke on on a whiteboard on the end of your street and have that spread around the world, you know, as a, like, with the same effectiveness as the virus? Yeah, because we all know about our numbers now. You know, another thing that wasn't in our lexicon when, <laughs> yes. when we started talking. Yes. And yeah. we know that, you know, an R of three creates viral spread, exponential growth. Creates an outbreak. You only need to, you, know, you yeah. infect two other people with this amazing idea of, of being cool to each other and they do to other people and pretty soon the whole world is being cool to each other. Yeah. It's not hard. And one of the things, talking to Gail, that Extinction Rebellion are finding is... Uh, we were talking about the response of the police because my absolute belief is that the day the police sit down with us in the street is the day we win. And she said that when we were all in Trafalgar Square in October, the Met basically ran out in the first week. They, their people had been run round the clock shifts and they, they had to stop. And so they had to ship people in from all around the rest of the country, which you know is the point of that kind of action. And usually they go, OK, who wants overtime? And they're flooded. And they went, okay, who wants overtime? And almost nobody stepped up. They had wow. to they had to actually drag these people kicking and screaming down to London to to do what they needed them to do. So and then she said also she's been talking to bankers and she talked to one group and she didn't say this in the podcast. She said this to me privately, but I think I can share it. Where she had just finished explaining to this the fifty most important hedge funders in London why it was necessary that they stop doing what they're doing. And one of the guys apparently had been tweeting quite derogatorily from the back. Um, And there was a break and everybody came up and he showed her his phone and his daughter had messaged back to him going, oh, for goodness sake, dad, stop it. Listen to her. And so 
He's saying, you know, the hedge funders are realising their kids are sitting in the streets with us. She was on BBC Radio and the editor said at the end, you know, my daughter is sitting out in the streets with you. And the young people, I really believe part of the TV series that we're going to write is what would happen if the young people were given power? What would happen if Greta Thunberg's generation were given power? Because these people are, some of them, so much more emotionally literate, so much more connected than we are in in so many different ways. There's an extraordinary podcast by, it might be Jordan Hall again, actually, or Jamie, Jamie Weil, Weil, sorry, who has been an entrepreneur all his life. He's a, a huge tech genius in Silicon Valley. And he was talking about his 12 year old daughter and she plays Minecraft. And he thought, OK, summer vacation, I will pay you this quite significant amount of money if you can get seven of your friends together and between you, you can create something on Minecraft that nobody has ever seen before. So it's a bit like the 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 dolphin that the Karen Pryor's dolphin showed yes, me a trick yes. that I've never seen before. Yeah. And he said within an hour, she'd got seven of her friends had signed up. And then he watched and he watched and they, as far as he could see, spent the rest of the summer just playing Minecraft. And it got to the last week before the end of the summer vacation. And he said, you, you don't want the money? You know, are you, are you going to do this thing? And she went, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 we'll count. And in a week, seven girls age 12, he said he'd never seen the connectivity or the capacity to share power amongst themselves or the capacity to get things done. He said he didn't even want to try and name it because naming it would have locked it into his way of being. And they were doing things that he could not have conceived of in ways he could not have conceived of. And they created something that not only had he never seen, he could not have imagined it in a week. And that generation, the people who have been connected since before they could walk, are, are here. And what would happen if we went, you know what, our generation has really messed up. How about you guys have a go? Right. We'll just step back out of, out yeah, of your way. Yeah, because because the future of humanity is at stake and you're going to live in humanity longer than we have left. So really, you know, we're here if you want us. If you need to ask anything, we will do what we can to help. But in the meantime, give it a go, guys. What would happen? And and every time I say that, my whole body becomes electric. I think, why, why are we not doing this? You know, we just let... We let geriatrics run the country. And these people's emotional state was set in their first five years, which was a long time ago in the last millennium, in a different world. Why yeah. are we letting these people run us? So so when you ask, how would we change it? How would we change things? Actually, that's what I'd do. The guy, the guy who's running Humanity Rising, I'll stop talking at you in a minute, Alex, but this is quite exciting. So he said... He started with the idea and he gave himself the question of, okay, so I'm going to be God of the world for a day. I can do one thing. What one thing would I do? And he thought, okay, all the oil stays in the ground. He thought, well, no. Okay, so nobody's allowed to cut down any trees in the Amazon. No. And he went through a number of things, all of which were, these are end results of bad stuff, but they're not changing the reason why they happened in the first place. How can I change that? And he thought, Actually, what we need to do is that every layer of governance from dog catcher through parish council 
town council, whatever, county council, whatever your things are in the states, all through the world, right up, Congress, the Senate, to the president, every layer of governance is women. Okay. And let's see what happens. So Humanity Rising is going to start off with with women at the TED Talks. And I, I, you know, I heard that and I said, you know, I live in a country that's had two female prime ministers and I, I hate to tell you, but it wasn't that much better. In fact, actually, it was worse. And he, but yeah, but they were women in a men's world. They were they were women who who had managed to act like men better than all the other men. Yes. If every layer is women, where do you think we'd get to? And, you know, Iceland pretty much has done that. And Iceland is, uh, whenever I think, where could we run away to that would be safe? Iceland's pretty high on the list. It's going to be very crowded. Also quite cold. But uh, you know, it's a it's an idea. But I would, you know, you can do that. But the women take their orders from the the twelve year olds, who are connected, hmm. or you know, the under twenties. Yeah, interesting ideas. Yeah, and and yeah. in the meantime, let's stop sending them to school where they're being trained in ways that were useful in the nineteenth century and are yeah. not useful now. I I just don't, and of course, I don't have children, and I'm not a school teacher, so I'm the last. So with those person, caveats, <laughs> right? So I'm the last person who should be making any comments about this. But I just do not get why it's a bad thing that schools are closed. No, I know a lot of teachers who are with you on that. Yeah, because, you know, and, and, and I, I have good friends who are teachers. And so this is not to take anything away from them. And, and, I, and I recognize that there are things that get done in classrooms that are of real value. But I just think of the amazing opportunities this opens up for children mm-hmm. to really be learning some very cool things and engage in some very cool projects and yeah. have time for it. Yeah. Because you're not locked into the school curriculum, which is so deadening. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and which was designed to create lots of little automata who yes. could all behave the same and who had demonstrated in exam situations that they could think under pressure. So that when you sent them to areas around your colonies where, you know, the fuzzy wuzzies and all the people that you didn't really like might assault them. Um, with spears and things, they could they could still think under pressure. That's what the schooling system that the UK basically developed and then shipped around the world was for. Can you get a lot of young men, largely, who can read and write, add up columns so they can do the accounts, send each other missives, and can still think under extreme pressure and, and do the basics? So let's set up a system that does that. And that, you know, we don't need to do that anymore. <laughs> And and you know, educationists have demonstrated that endlessly. There's a wonderful, wonderful series of YouTube videos of the school in the cloud of a wonderful guy in India who looked at the slum kids. He he was a a computer scientist oh, and his university, yes. the slum kids. Yes. yes, and you know, and what is what happens if we if we put a computer in the hole in the wall, and and within a month the kids have taught themselves how to use a computer that's in English. And and his, his students are going, nah, no, somebody taught them what to do with the mouse and how to point. And he went, oh, okay. And then he went off and found a village, you know, a thousand miles from anywhere else where there's definitely no passing undergraduates who might have taught them how to use a mouse. And he puts a computer under the tree in, in the village square and goes away and comes back in six months and they've taught themselves English. And he loaded it yeah. up with molecular biology. And he came back in six months and he said, what have you learned? And in English, they said, we haven't learned anything. And he went, oh, really? Well, tell me what you did learn. And he said one little girl stood up and in a 
mix of English and Punjabi, she said. What we learned was that incorrect replication of the DNA molecule leads to disease. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> and she was nine. Nine. Yes. And they told themselves that because he'd given them a computer with the right stuff on. And then he wanted to get them all to the level where they would pass some ridiculous exam. And he said, okay, well, we just need the grandmothers. And he, he advertised in The Guardian for Britain, to Brit in Britain and, and said, have oh, got any grandmothers who've got a computer and a good internet connection and some spare time? And he got all these little old ladies and they went, well, we don't know molecular biology. He said, no, no, you don't need to know. Pedagogy of the grandmother. You just look over their shoulder and go, oh, wow, that's amazing. I didn't know that when I was your age. What else can you learn? And see where you get to. And and within another few months, they'd all passed you know, whatever level exam it was in molecular biology. And these are you know, kids in single figures, like nine, eight, nine, in an Indian village in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Kids are curious. Kids will learn. If you make it a game, they'll do anything. Yes. So, so yeah, there's a and wonderful it, woman actually you should interview. That'd be really exciting. She's called Karen McGonigal. She's in California and she wrote a book called Reality is Broken, which was all about how games work. It was about how you get people dopamine addicted, really. But they, she, there are a couple of schools in California where school is now a game, where you go in and you, you open a book in the library and the magic spell falls out. And in order for you to be able to make the magic spell, you have to go and find one of the older kids to teach you a bit of chemistry and then somebody else teach you a bit of maths. And then you put it all together and an amazing thing, you know, a reaction happens. And, and then you go, you go back to another book in the library and put your answer in and then you get the power up. Because wow. she said, you know, kids in America spend 10,000 hours in school and 22,000 hours playing computer games. Guess what they're learning from? Yes. And, if you, and, and these kids go home and play school because it's fun. They're busy emailing they're, they're the older kids going, OK, so how do you do this? You know, what happens when you put the acid with the alkali in, and, and, then, and then do that? And how many grams of that do you need to do that? And, and it's fun. So why, why, why do we think school has to be hell? It doesn't. So it can be done. Yeah, I mean, that's, can the, be. that's the thing. It can be done. It is possible. All of these things are possible. And, and we, we live on an amazing planet and we it can be an amazing planet. Just, yeah. Yeah. We yeah. just need to let ourselves believe it. And we need to cure ourselves of the mindset that says, if it wasn't hard, you know, no pain, no gain. That's one right. of the most dangerous phrases that humanity ever came up with because we believe it. And it doesn't have to be true. Wow. It is all, it is possible. I'm just sitting here thinking, this is a long way from... And horse people can make a difference. <laughs> look at where look at where we have ridden to. We got on that horse, and look where it took us. Yes, but and I, I so I have a little horsey story that okay. I could tell you just to oh, end good. with because we're going to have to stop soon. So yes. so my mare is due to fall in the next yes. few days. Deep excitement. So I'm really working on how can I connect with her on a, a sort of animal communication level, and. I'm doing a lot more meditating sitting down in the yard. And I was sitting in the yard yesterday doing the let everything settle to emptiness, centering, grounding. And then she was there and they've taken to hanging. When I go and meditate in the yard, I end up the cats arrive first and then the chickens arrive and then the ponies arrive and then the dog arrives. So basically everybody is in this little <laughs> circle of, of a meter round and they're all just chilling out. Nobody's doing anything. And I said to Lily, 
what do you want me to do? Because I'm open and I I don't know. And what happened was really hard to put a finger on. But my sense of self opened out as if if I were a textured weave. It was as if she because she turned her head and she kind of gave me that sideways look and it was as if she reached out and touched the space around me that is where I end and everything else begins and created space, more space than there had been and space then for the essence of me to feel more fluid and to feel different. And again, it was another of those where when I started doing the what have we got it right meditations and I didn't realize how much fear I was carrying until I began to let it go. I didn't realize how much my sense of self was rigid until she showed me how it could be more pliable. And I, I've played with that again today. And I think this feels like that sense of rigidity is something that I probably bring to the ponies and that if I let myself be more pliable, they can be more pliable. And it's a really, it's one of those things that I spend my life teaching shamanic students not to try too hard. And I can feel myself trying too hard. And so just taking a step back into the space where I can hold the inquiry of what would it feel like to be more open without rushing to fill that space with an answer feels really important and and something that I wouldn't have learned if I hadn't asked my pony what to do. Yes. So there we go. So there we are. So we just need to, all of us, ask the horses, what should we do? And give space for there to be an answer that isn't coming from me. Yes. And to spend time as I have while we've been talking, looking out over just this beautiful green of the trees hmm. and ask them as well. Yeah. Yes. Because we can ask anything. That's absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't just have yes. to be the horses for sure. But what the horses do is they provide us with environments in which it is, I think, easier to ask those questions. Yes. Because we're, they, they let us stay connected to a natural world. Yeah. You know, I'm not in, when we started out this conversation, when you said, how are you? And I said, well, you know, I, I'm good because I'm not living in an apartment. Yeah, we can each see our ponies. You know, there are people who aren't living in apartments but haven't seen their horses for 10 weeks because they can't go. That's right. Are. That's right. Yeah, so we are very lucky. We are very lucky that we are, we have created a, a lifestyle that allows us to stay connected to the natural world, which is why we care about it. Mm. One of the many reasons. You know, it's that old, that old thing with people who are, uh, Ken Ramirez, when he was director of the Shed Aquarium, used to talk about uh, people, they, they'd have a job opening and you'd get all these uh, applications filled in and people would say, you know, I don't really like people, I'm, but I'm really good with animals and that's why I want to work at the Shed Aquarium and those would need to go in the waste paper basket because, yep. you know. Because you have to be good with people. You have to be good with people. And and I think one of the things that and I'm looking out over these beautiful trees thinking, but we have to remember that it's staying connected to humanity. Mm. 
that is important as well, that getting a backpack and and hiking the Appalachian Trail for the summer to stay away from the coronavirus is not Are people doing not that? the answer. Probably huh. uh, wouldn't surprise me. You know, it's it's not the answer. The we are part of this planet. Yeah, we are very lucky in that we are able to step out of our back door, out of our front door, into a green and beautiful environment. Yeah, yeah. And that makes it uh, an amazing environment in which to sit and and ask those questions, important questions. And and that's where horse people can make a difference. You have to have to get that connection in. You have to bring that one back in. Yes. Yeah, so you have to we have to make that connection. Yes. Because we we live in environments when we take that time, they really help us to make these connections and ask those questions. And what you're doing with the accidental gods is you're helping to guide us to questions that are of real value to be asking. And that's really what we've been talking about yeah. in this conversation. Is what are some of the important questions to be asked? Yeah, because everyone will have different answers. Yes. But if we can ask the questions and then come together and share our answers, then we can build a future that's different. Yes. And a future that's different feels so really good. It does, doesn't it? I, there's a lovely old yeah. guy called Raymond Williams who's, who's dead now. He was Welsh. And he said, to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. Wow. And I think that's what we're trying to do with Horses for Future is to make hope possible. Yes. Give people agency, give them the sense that there is a world that can be different and that each of us has agency in creating that. Yes. And we do. We absolutely do. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely do. Yeah. The, the reality is yeah. created by yeah, all the small bits of all the small individual actions of everybody. Yes. And we are more connected than ever. And so we can share all of that. Yeah. And just let it spread around the planet. Yes. We've seen that the virus can do it, so we can do it. Yep, definitely. Yeah, yep. yeah. Our rate of three, and we're there. So, yep. so as Good. everybody's job from here is to to ask yourself that question of how would it feel if we got everything right from here on in? How would it feel if we were flourishing? And then find two other people that you can persuade to explore that with you. And then send each of them out into the world to find two others who will find two others who will find two others. Wow. Actually, it's only 1.3, apparently. Oh, well. But it's hard to find. It's easier to find two Yeah, let's go for two. Than, than let's a, go faster and further. Person. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, you can find yes. 10. 10 That's is right. good. But you know, at least two. At least two. Because then we have an outbreak. Yeah. Sounds good. Yay. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Hey. Good conversation. Yeah. Thank you for listening. I'm publishing this during a time of great anguish in the United States. Not only are we dealing with the coronavirus, but we are also having to face the demon of racism after the George Flood murder. If ever there was a time to imagine how it would feel to live in a world in which everyone can thrive, this is it. So dream well, 
Imagine well. Stay well. Horse people can make a difference. And together, we will learn how. Thank you for listening.